0: Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A woman out in Australia, after horribly mistreating her boyfriends and husbands over the course of her entire life, ended up committing one of the most infamous, heinous crimes in the history of the country. This year I've got yet another video that will ruin your appetite for sure. This one takes place out in Australia, where a woman, after suffering a horrible childhood, decided to create an even worse childhood for her own children by doing what she did. Going back to the very beginning, Barbara and Jack Ruffin had just gotten married, living in a small town called Aberdeen in Hunter Valley, an area of New South Wales in Australia. They had four kids together, making up a pretty nice little nuclear family. That was until Barbara decided to start cheating on her husband with his own best friend and co-worker, a man named Ken Knight. The local backlash to this adulterous fling was so bad that Barbara and Ken had to leave town, moving over to a place called Marie. None of Barbara's sons wanted to move with her, disgusted at what she had done. The two older ones stayed with their father, while the two younger ones went out to live with their aunt in Sydney. Barbara ended up firing out about four more babies with Ken, including a pair of twin girls. One of these girls was named Catherine. Catherine was doomed to grow up in a dysfunctional, unconventional family to say the least. When Catherine was about four years old, Barbara's ex-husband died and those two sons were forced to come live with Barbara and the family got even bigger. But the sons couldn't really help it. They were left with nowhere to go, forcing them to live with Barbara and the man that had torn their family apart. Ken was, as you might expect, a pretty awful guy. He was a violent drunk who would often force himself on Barbara, sometimes up to 10 times a day or more. Barbara, oddly, shared stories about these incidents with her young daughters, giving them a very twisted idea of how a relationship is supposed to work. Catherine has claimed herself that she was subjected to the same treatment by several other members of the family, although not by her father until she was about 11 years old. Some doubt these claims, but it seems that a few psychiatrists have believed her and her other family members have corroborated her stories. The only person in her family that Catherine actually liked was her uncle, Oscar. She was further traumatized when Oscar ended his own life. She said that his ghost continually came to visit her, a claim that she upheld for the rest of her life, saying that he never stopped haunting her. After that, the whole family moved out to Aberdeen. Catherine grew older and started dating in high school. When her boyfriend wanted to start sleeping with her, she felt uncomfortable and told her mom about it. Barbara, oddly enough, even after experiencing what she did, told Catherine to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Catherine was, on the surface, a model student. However, behind the scenes, this was not the case. She was a loner who tended to bully the students at school who were smaller than her. She even injured one boy with an unspecified weapon, and on another occasion was injured by a teacher who acted in self-defense after she attacked her. Catherine quit school at 15 years old, never having learned to read or write the entire time, somehow. At first, all she could do was work at a clothing factory, cutting up fabrics. She took an interest in the act of cutting, specifically, going on to find herself a job cutting up animal organ meats at a local slaughterhouse. She was good at what she did, getting promoted and moving up the ranks pretty quickly. She was given her own set of butcher knives, which she treasured. She hung the knives over her bed, thinking that they may come in handy if she ever needed them. She continued keeping them above her bed in every house she ever lived in. Catherine came to meet a co-worker named David Kellett. Kellett was a big drinker, just like her father, after some trauma he received at his previous job as a railway worker. He had witnessed his best friend get killed right in front of him when they failed to properly switch a train from one track to another. After that, he had to save a bunch of injured children from a school bus after it was hit by a train, seeing six deceased children inside. His performance plummeted, causing him to lose his job. That's when he started working at the same Aberdeen slaughterhouse as Catherine and grew close with her brother. He and Catherine had a very unconventional sort of relationship. It appeared that whenever David got into a fight, which was fairly often, I guess, Catherine would often jump in and beat up the opponent for him. She was known for being violent and unpredictable, often threatening anyone who came to offend her. In 1974, the two decided to get married, showing up to their own wedding on a motorcycle, completely plastered. At the wedding, Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave David a bit of advice. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of cheating on her, she'll fucking kill you." She told David that Catherine had a screw loose somewhere and that he needed to watch out. David apparently didn't care and the wedding proceeded. That night, the couple consummated the marriage, three times. But this still wasn't enough for Catherine. She was angry that he was done after only a mere three boinks and flew into a rage. She tried to strangle him right then and there on their wedding night, but he fought her off. The two remained married somehow, and the marriage remained terrible, as you might have predicted. At one point, David was taking part in a darts competition. He got all the way to the finals, taking a little bit longer than he expected. He got home late, and despite being pregnant, Catherine freaked out and burned all of David's clothes before hitting him across the face with a frying pan. David fled the home and ran to a neighbor's house where he lost consciousness, suffering from a fractured skull. Originally, he wanted to press charges, but Catherine sweet-talked him out of it. Catherine gave birth to their first child, Melissa. Shortly after, David decided he was done. The violence was never going to stop. He left her for another woman and moved to Queensland to escape. The next day, Catherine took her newborn baby out in a stroller, violently shaking it from side to side. She was taken into a local hospital where she was diagnosed with postpartum depression and had to spend several weeks in recovery. Ultimately, she was released. A short while after, she once again took Melissa out on the town. She walked out to some railroad tracks and placed the child down, knowing a train was coming soon. She left her there, walking away to a local shop to steal an axe. She threatened to kill several other people before being caught and arrested. Luckily, a local homeless man was walking near the railroad tracks and noticed Melissa, saving her only moments before the train arrived. Catherine was once again committed to the hospital. After getting out once again, Catherine came up to a woman with one of her butcher knives and cut her across the face, ordering the woman to drive her to Queensland so she could confront David. The woman complied, but luckily escaped at a service station along the way. Police were called and Catherine took a young boy hostage with a knife. She was then taken down when a police officer smacked her over the head with a broom. Once again she was placed into a mental hospital. This time, she told the nurses that she was more than ready to kill someone, namely the mechanic at that station who had fixed David's car, blaming him for her husband being able to get away. Then, she planned on killing both David and his mother. When hearing about this, David actually left his new girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen with his mom to give Catherine his support. Catherine was released not too long after and placed into the care of her mother-in-law. Along with her and David, they moved to Ipswich, a town west of Brisbane. There, she got another butcher job, and had another daughter with David. However, four years after her daughter was born, she suddenly left David and moved back to live with her parents in Aberdeen. She went back to her job at her old slaughterhouse, but soon after injured her back and ended up on disability. Catherine, now with nothing to do, found another David, David Saunders, in 1986. It was only a few short months before he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he never stopped paying for his old apartment. Catherine soon became paranoid of what he might be doing when she wasn't around, often kicking him out of the house with no provocation. He'd go back to his apartment, she'd beg him to come back, rinse and repeat. One prime example of what she did to this guy took place in May of 1987. Without even believing Saunders was cheating, she decided to give him a little demonstration of what would happen to him if he did. She picked up his two-month-old dingo puppy and slit its neck right in front of him. Then she knocked him out with a frying pan. The year after, she gave birth to another daughter, prompting the two to get a house together. Catherine immediately started decorating the place with animal skins, horns, bear traps, leather, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. She left no patch of the wall undecorated, making the place look like a psychopath's take on an Applebee's. After one more argument, she smacked Saunders across the face before stabbing him in the gut with a pair of scissors. He decided enough was enough and finally moved out. But he made the mistake of coming back, only to see she had chopped up all of his clothes. He took a longer leave from work to go into hiding. Catherine tried to find him, but to no avail. After a while, though, he had to see his daughters. He came back to find that Catherine had, likely to save face, gone to the police and told them she was afraid of him. Due to this, she had gotten an apprehended violence order against him, basically a restraining order. Then, in 1991, Catherine got pregnant by a former co-worker named John Chillingsworth and had a son named Eric together. They were together for three years before Catherine left him for yet another man she was cheating with. At the time, Chillingsworth had no idea how lucky he truly was. Enter John Charles Price, a married man with three kids at the time he first met Catherine. They met at a hotel in 1993, quickly starting an affair together. It wasn't long before they were seen all over town together, throwing away his previous marriage to do so. The worst thing is, John knew exactly who she was. He had heard all the violent stories about her and chose to ignore them. John was, by all accounts, aside from the infidelity, a well-respected guy to all who knew him. He was making a good amount of money as a minor and his kids loved him. His kids actually loved Catherine too, with his two older kids living with the two. Their relationship was great at first, with Catherine playing the devoted, loving housewife who cooked dinner for her husband every night, sewed up his clothes, and took care of his kids. And according to John, she was great in bed. He said that his life was, in his own words, a bunch of roses. But as you might expect, it wasn't too long before the violent arguments started up. The two got into a huge fight when John refused to marry Catherine. So as revenge, she took a video of some items he had reportedly stolen from work and sent it to his boss. Despite the fact that the items were out of date and due to be trashed when he took them, he was fired regardless. He kicked her out that very day. But as most of the past relationships went, it was only a matter of time before they were getting back together, although now John refused to live with her again. The fighting only got worse, to the point where John's friends didn't even want to hang out with him anymore due to how horrible she was. Catherine kept assaulting John more and more until she eventually stabbed him in the chest. John Price again kicked her out of his house. He stopped into the Scone Magistrates Court on February 29, 2000 and began the work to take out a restraining order against her. He went into work and told his co-workers that, if he didn't come into work the next day, it would be because Catherine had killed him. They said that he shouldn't even go home, but he was afraid what Catherine might do to his kids if he didn't. Catherine had completely gone over the edge. She started plotting against him immediately, going out and buying some black lingerie for the evening, which seems nice until you learn what she had in store. She took a butcher's knife she owned and hid it in the bedroom. She also made sure she got some particular sizes of pots and pans. She sat down and started sharpening her knives, feeling a sense of pleasure as she planned out her night. Catherine then took a video of the kids, forcing them to say all manner of things about their father against their will. John got home to find out that Catherine had sent the kids away for a sleepover at a friend's house and had left herself. John went back out for a while and got back home at about 11pm, heading to bed. Catherine came home while he was sleeping and watched TV for a few minutes before hopping into the shower. She woke John up in her new nightwear and slept with him, waiting until he fell asleep afterwards. She grabbed the butcher knife that she hid in the bedroom and stabbed him once, awakening him from his sleep in sheer terror. He jumped out of bed and attempted to flee the house, but losing a lot of blood, he was starting to black out. Catherine dragged him back inside, only to stab him another 36 times in the chest and back, enjoying herself all the way. After John finally died from the blood loss, she got down to carrying out her plan. Catherine drove into town and removed about a thousand dollars from John's bank account before returning home. Then she dragged John's body into the doorway to the lounge room. She using her set of knives completely removed all of the skin from his body. According to a pathologist, doing so would have taken her at least a whole 40 minutes. She then removed his head and took it into the kitchen. She cooked his head and several other body parts on the stove, serving them up with some baked potato, pumpkin, cabbage, and carrots, along with some gravy. She took much of the concoction and put it into three plates, attempting to make it look like a nice meal. She put two plates on the table for the kids, along with writing each of the names on notes she left under them. She was likely planning for the kids to eat them upon returning home. Catherine tried to eat part of her own plate, but couldn't go through with it, throwing it out into the back lawn instead. It's debated on whether she actually ate him at all, but it is widely believed that she at least did a little bit. She left the head cooking at a lower heat on the stove while she went over to the medicine cabinet and took out all manner of medications. She went over to what was left of John's body on the floor and positioned his arm with a bottle underneath it and crossed his legs, likely to demean him, implying that he was a drunk. She then took a whole handful of the medication, lied down, and passed out. At 6am the next morning a neighbor found it odd that john's car was still in his driveway once he didn't show up to work his co-workers were very concerned about hearing what he had to say the day before his boss sent an employee out to check on him who tried knocking on both the front door and the windows to no avail after noticing blood coming out from under the front door this co-worker called the police police showed up and broke the door down they entered into the home to find a complete horror show It was only mere moments before they followed the blood-soaked hallways back to find what appeared to be meat. They soon came to discover that this was what was left of John Price. Catherine wasn't dead, though. She was out cold, but still alive. John Price's body had been completely removed of skin with the internal organs and bones exposed. Catherine had left a note for John himself, pretending she had done this as revenge for something he did to the kids, which read, in all of its illiterate glory, Time got you back, Jonathan, for rapping my dooter. You to Beck, for Ross, for Little John. Now play with Little John's dick, John Price. Her accusations were later found to be baseless. The cops went over and immediately arrested Catherine, taking her out of the home. Once she woke up, she claimed to have no memory of the previous night. Regardless, she was charged with murder. One officer, who now suffers from PTSD, continued to investigate the home. Once he entered the part of the house that connected the living room to the dining room, he came across the worst sight yet. It appeared, at first, to be a very large animal pelt hanging from a hook connected to the ceiling. Then, he noticed some black hair on top, a human nose, and eventually part of a mouth and an ear. The rest of the skin looked featureless as it draped down to the floor. Catherine initially offered to plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter, still claiming she was suffering from amnesia. This offer was swiftly rejected. Instead, she was charged in March of 2001 for the murder of John Price, to which she pled not guilty. Her trial took place on October 15th. The court justice, Barry O'Keefe, offered the 60 jury participants with the option to view the photo evidence, telling them what it held. Only five accepted. Once the gruesome details of the murder were explained, Catherine flew into hysterics and had to be sedated. After this, the court was adjourned to the next day. The very next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty, negating the need for a long trial. The jury was able to be spared any more sights. The justice had been told this was coming and ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Catherine really was able to understand the implications of pleading guilty in court. It was found that she did. The legal team had planned to claim that she suffered from dissociation and then amnesia but they no longer had any need to during the trial one of australia's best psychologists attested that he felt catherine likely did suffer from borderline personality disorder but he stated that she would have known everything she was doing on the night of the murder although catherine did give a guilty plea nobody really knows why she did it she continued to claim innocence even after the fact never once taking responsibility for what she had done Justice O'Keefe on November 8th said that, due to the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse, he would be sentencing her to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He specifically marked her papers with, Definitely never to be released. The first time such a penalty had ever been given to a woman in the history of the country. After several years behind bars, Catherine chose to appeal the life sentence in 2006, claiming it was too severe for what she had done. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal. Justice McClellan wrote in his judgment that, "...this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society." To this day, despite being in her late 60s, Catherine still refuses to admit any fault in the crime. She's still serving out her life sentence. Inside the maximum security prison, she's known as the Nana to other inmates. It's said that she's the most popular inmate in the prison and is, ironically, known to be somewhat of a peacemaker, even serving as the prison's event planner. One of the other inmates has said, We called her Nana. She was a gentle soul and not a criminal to me. She is a mediator at Mulawa. She's someone who sorted out problems before they got serious. She would stop girls stealing from each other and stop girls from fighting, but she never did it by standing over anyone. She never raised her hands to anyone. She was just someone who everyone loved. Catherine doesn't have any sort of record of violence at the jail. Even the guards respect her to a certain degree. Despite that, she's being held as a Category 4 inmate, the highest designation one can receive and always will be. She'll never be leaving that prison in the little time she has left.